today on Ag News Daily. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Market Monday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. My name is Delaney Howell, and I am back from graduation, joined by my fantastic co-host, Mike Pearson, who picked up the slack last week as I was off gallivanting in Texas. No problem, Delaney. Glad to be here. Glad you're back, but also glad you graduated. Glad you're done with school, at least for a while, I would think. Yeah, hopefully. I don't know what would be next. I think I'm done with school. Maybe I'll teach school. That seems better. Hmm, does it? Um, I don't know. I've thought about, you know, teaching at a collegiate level, not at high school level. Oh, you're so fancy. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're going to be teaching at a collegiate level, you're going to have to have your head around what is going on in the world. You'll have to be tied into the news of the day, Delaney, and that's what we want to do here on the podcast. So what is some of the ag news that's jumping out at you this fine Monday? Well, I think... And I know that you talked a lot about it last week, towards the end of the week there, but there's a lot going on right now on the trade front in particular. The farm bill, we've still got that kind of floating around. So there's really a lot to talk about, Mike, as far as news goes. I think the biggest thing to consider when we look at really everything related to policy is spending. We still don't have government funding for 2019, and the deadline is just five days away It appears that there's still no deal on a final agriculture USDA, FDA spending bill. Um, So I guess if that doesn't get granted, we go into a government shutdown unless they pass another extension, as I understand it. Yep, there'll be another extension. That's my guess. Yeah. Yeah, There'll be an extension, and then that'll kick it into the new Congress, Mm -hmm. and then uh, probably we'll find some way to get, who knows, something done at that point. Yeah, but it's going to be a long process. But so, you know, we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, and I've had a lot of producers because last week, as I mentioned, I was traveling, uh, talking to a couple of different farm groups. But what happens with, like, FSA payments and, you know, the uh, farmer assistance bailout package if we don't see funding? Do those programs, do those offices continue to get funded? It all depends on what gets designated as essential and non-essential programs. Mm-hmm. In the past, and I don't know if this is how it would go this time, but in the past, FSA has been non-essential and they have shut down. I know. So I would assume that would be the case if we do enter a government shutdown. There is yeah. a lot of back and forth about funding the border wall or not, and that could be mm. the uh, the straw that breaks this camel's back and pushes us towards a shutdown. And, you know, as we talk about, um, especially the farmer assistance package, the uh, second tranche of payments, as we know, has been kind of put on hold by the Congressional Budget Office. But apparently Secretary Perdue met with President Trump last Friday to try and convince him and other White House officials to release those funds, saying that, you know, this affected the other marketing year. Producers are still feeling the results of the trade and tariffs and whatnot. So, Sounds like he's still trying to work with the administration to get them to understand the uh, importance that this second tranche was going to have for a lot of producers. Yes, it's a very interesting situation where both of the 
both of the, the the pro and the con side of the second MFP payment, they're in the White House. They're in the executive branch. It's the Office of Management and Budget, which is controlled mm-hmm. by President Trump. They don't want to release the funds. They, as Michael Dolch mentioned on Friday, they don't like spending money. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Secretary Purdue and the Department of Agriculture saying, hey, you know, farmers have suffered. Go ahead and release the money. And I don't know who wins. I don't know if the president can actually step in and say, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do or not. I, I don't know. Yeah. It yeah. is a cluster whoops, as some <laughs> might say. Yeah, we can't say the real word because this is a clean rating podcast. That's right. We want to <laughs> keep it clean for all of our listeners out there if you're riding with children's in the car. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah, Delaney, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to mention that as well. That meeting happened. We don't yet know how that is all going to shake out, but we will keep an eye on it. I do have a date change to announce, Delaney. Okay. National Ag Day is changing dates. It is being moved from uh, whatever date it was supposed to be, I forget what that was, to March 14th, 2019. That is the new National Ag Day due to a change in the congressional calendar that forced the rescheduling of National Ag Day, which I thought was surprising. So, yeah, if you like to, uh, you know, take your tractor to school on Ag Day, you'll be doing it on March 14th, 2019. Hmm. Okay. Well, Mike, I don't know. Did you talk at all last week, last Friday? I haven't had time to listen to the podcast yet. Did you have time to talk at all about trade with the EU? I didn't, Delaney. Do you want to bring us up to speed? I would love to. So on Friday, we had quite a few U.S. farm groups and commodity groups, including the U.S. Grains Council, the National Pork Producers Council, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and others testified before a panel of Trump administration officials as the Office of the U.S. Trade Representatives prepares for talks coming up with the EU, basically emphasizing how important ag is going to be for that agreement. And as we know, the EU has said, come out and said, basically flat out, they don't want to negotiate ag. They're not interested in negotiating with ag. Um, But we're continuing to see more and more groups come to the forefront and say, hey, we want this, we want this, new trade agreement to include ag. So not only did farm groups come to that meeting, but automaker and food and beverage groups were also pressing the Trump administration on Friday to ensure that any new trade talks with the EU would lead to an increase in their access as well. I don't know here. I think we're heading into kind of some more firmer talks with the EU, and those groups just want to make sure their voices are heard as well. Absolutely. The EU is one of the world's strongest users of non-tariff barriers. Mm-hmm. So they use, you know, their opposition to glyphosate to keep out food. They use, you know, internal government controls to keep out food. And so they're not using tariffs like China is now doing, but they're using other forms. And I think that's what we want to have negotiated or at least be negotiable if we do end up actually reopening trade talks with the EU. I think it's a good sign that these groups are getting out there and hopefully they can uh, make some headway because there has just been a strong anti-science movement in Europe as it comes to food. and Maybe a little U.S. common sense can square their heads up a little bit. I'm trying to think where I read it, but it seems like this morning I was reading some commentary too that said the EU um, last year increased ethanol imports by a substantial amount. And so I think ag groups were looking to hopefully see that come to fruition again for 2019. 
Well, that would be good, and it ties right into my story, and this is kind of a big story, so I'm going to kind of break it down as best as possible. Ethanol prices, Delaney, as you've mentioned several times, and as we'll probably hear about when we talk with Ted Seifert for our Hashtag Market Monday discussion, ethanol prices are historically very, very low right now, Mm -hmm. and U.S. ethanol producers are looking to change the way that the contracts get priced on the CME. So right now, Green Plains, Poet, uh, several other Valero, several other ethanol makers have written a letter and they're asking the CME group to change its pricing method for the contract that is used by the industry to hedge. So basically, just like farmers can hedge December corn or November soybeans, ethanol producers can hedge ethanol prices, but they argue that the way the current market is structured, it just isn't fair. So right now, they use what's called the Platts price for ethanol. And this price is based off of daily sales that occur within a 30-minute window every day. That's it. And so what these plants are saying or these companies are saying is that that allows ADM or other companies to push the market down during that 30 minutes, and then that changes the entire contract's shape. And basically, it's, it's forward curve. So they're saying we need to be able to look at the full day's worth of price, blah, 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 blah. And it looks like CME is taking this comment very seriously. And the Intercontinental Exchange, which has a similar contract that has historically used the same Platts pricing, is already looking at making a shift and listening to these uh, these rivals of ADM. Basically, they're saying that ADM is the largest, uh, as the largest seller in the ethanol market currently, is pushing pricing down. And that's allegedly being done to force, you know, Green Plains, Poet, and Valero to shut down or idle their plants and reduce competition. Hmm. Well, it's going to be interesting to get Ted's opinion on that coming up here in the Market Monday segment because he's definitely an advocate and follows the ethanol industries very closely. You bet. I bet nobody in this country burns more ethanol in their <laughs> personal vehicles than, uh, than Ted Cypher. <laughs> definitely not. Well, we've got a little bit of good news here. When we look at rural broadband coming to those of us who can't get it, I know firsthand my parents have the world's crappiest rural broadband. It's basically useless when I go home to try and do any work. But we've got, um, I guess you could say, funding. USDA is basically raising standards. And this is actually included in part of the farm bill for the next five years here. But USDA is launching in the new year a program, a loan and grant program that will help with higher service requirements than the department originally proposed. So in the farm bill, we're going to see um, basically a couple of key changes. And this probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people because it doesn't mean a lot to me. But basically, they're going to set requirements that we need to see at least speeds of 25 megabits per second to upload products or projects or whatever, and then a three megabyte per second download time, which is in the farm bill. So they are basically offering up $600 million in loans and grants to qualified applicants to make available funds for people who are working um, to improve rural broadband. And they're, they're setting parameters here of of communities less than 20,000 people with no broadband service or service lower than that 25 megabits per second and um, three megabits downloads 
And so they're basically awarding $200 million for grants, $200 million for loan and grant combinations, and then $200 million for low-interest loans. And those applications are due various times here over the next couple of months, April, May, June. But they're working, and I thought that was just impressive that it actually got included in the farm bill to see rural broadband increase, requirements increase. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully that program comes to fruition and we can start to see a little faster internet out on the plains. That would be really, really nice. Really nice. For a lot of us. Yeah. (laughs) With crap internet. (laughs) Yep, with crap internet. Yeah, you have crap internet too. I sure do. Using my cell phone hotspot is the only way I can do the podcast. I know. No kidding. Well, Delaney, what do you say? Should we jump into the markets before we turn it over to Ted Seifert for our market discussion? Let's do that, Mike. And I just wanted to make one other quick mention here as we look at changes for 2019. And that's Ryan Zinke, Interior Secretary. Ryan Zinke is leaving his position at the end of this year, basically because of all the rumors going on about his travel and political activity during this time. So maybe a little sketchiness there, cleaning out the swamp, as they say. Absolutely. Well, let's turn it over to the markets. And folks, our markets are brought to us by our great friends at Zaner. Remember, you can get help with your marketing plan or any of your marketing decisions by giving the folks at Zaner a call. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at zaner.com. And here we go. The March corn contract down three quarters of a cent to 384 even. The May down a half. Closed the day at 391 and three quarters. China didn't buy today, so we saw a little strength in the soybean market for whatever reason. We'll pick Ted's brain here in a second. January contract up four and a quarter at 904 and three quarters. The March also up four and a quarter, closed the day at 918 even. And some strength in Chicago wheat with the March contract up five and a quarter cents at 535 and a quarter. The May also up five and a quarter, closed the day at 541 and three quarters. Looking over at livestock, we've got weakness all down the board today. December live cattle down 55 cents at 119.02 and a half. The Feb contract down 85 to finish at 121.55. In feeder cattle, the January contract dropped $2.20 to close at 145.37.50. The March down 245 to finish at 143.32 and a half. In lean hogs, the Feb contract down 67 and a half cents at 63.82 and a half. The April down $1.0750 to finish at 68.97 and a half. And a quick look over at the dairy market. In Class 3 milk, the December contract unchanged on the day at 1380. The January down two cents to close the day at 1420. Before we get into our conversation with Ted Seifert, let's get a word from our Market Monday sponsor. Hashtag Market Monday brought to us by our friends at Barber Cattle. Are you looking to buy or sell quality cattle? Make Barber Cattle your first call. Laura Barber of Barber Cattle and Sons of Kentucky can connect you with high-quality cattle, and they work nationwide. Call Laura at 859-229-7691. That number again, 859-229-7691. Get the best cattle with Barber. Well, for today's Market Monday session, we've got on one of our favorite analysts, Ted Seifert from the Zaner Group there in Chicago. Ted, thanks for chatting with us today on this exciting Market Monday episode. Pleasure, Delaney. So, Ted, I want to start it off here by talking about Chinese soybeans. I think that's kind of clouding the markets right now. We've seen some purchases at the end of last week, not a lot of purchases from China. But do you expect them to continue this trend of, I guess, it's almost like an olive branch, or an extending an olive branch to the U.S. and buying soybeans? 
Yes, that is the sort of buzzword that we've got uh, going around right now, which is the olive branch of China. And that's the question, really, is that, you know, are they buying soybeans to fill their needs between now and when Brazil comes in line, online? Because if that's the case, they're probably not going to buy enough to hit the current USDA's estimate uh, to fulfill that 1.9 billion bushel in exports that uh, they have us, which means that we're likely going to see that carryover come up and uh, cross that billion bushel threshold unless we see a sharply lower production number on the January report. Uh, or are they going to come in and offer an olive branch and buy a large amount of U.S. soybeans in order to partially or to rebuild their, their uh, state reserves, uh, but also just to say, hey, we are serious about wanting to get something done uh, with, a, with this trade agreement with, with the U.S. So, I want to be optimistic, Delaney, that uh, they are going to come in and buy more than what they have, uh, and I want to be optimistic that they're going to come in and buy quite a bit more than what they have. I'm hoping that they're going to buy at least 15 million metric tons. If they do that, that will help our balance sheet. Now, we, we might still have a record carryover, but it'll be quite a bit less than what we're looking at currently, uh, and then we'll see what happens as far as production is concerned. If they don't do that, if they just simply buy what they, you know, the, the 2 million metric tons, uh, or even if they buy another 2 to 4 million metric tons on top of that. In my estimation, that doesn't quite get us to where the USDA has them on a current balance sheet. And like I said, we're going to be looking at a bigger carryover. And to me, that doesn't justify these prices that we have right now, and that would mean more downside potential coming. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're waiting. I think the trade is growing more and more skeptical that they are going to come in with some bigger purchases, but it is a, it's, a, it's a very risky trade for the sellers right now uh, because if something does happen and we go sharply higher, that would be tough to be caught in. So y y the market is just very cautious right now. We're kind of in a, a holding pattern, waiting to see what happens with that and, you know, listening to, to hear if we get any more Chinese rumors. Well, Ted, let's talk sharply higher. Let's say China does go beyond extending an olive branch. They extend a full prime rib dinner to us. They make mm. some big purchases. What is sharply higher? Are we going to be looking at that 930, do you think, in the Jan contract? Or, or is most of the gain going to be in the farther deferred months? No, uh, because if, you know, for it to make an impact on this balance sheet, it's got to be soon. You know, the, the sales and the shipments have to be soon. So, you know, 930 is just kind of a technical target on, on the Jan beans, which we might get there one way or the, one way or the other anyways. Sharply higher. Uh, would be going to test the $10 level, or, or maybe oh. even 1030. Uh, but again, that only happens if we see a very significant sale to China. At the moment, I we need, from what I can tell, because the USDA doesn't doesn't outline each individual country as far as what we're sending them. Mm -hmm. But from what I can tell, by just breaking down the back end of their balance sheet on their global numbers. We're going to need to see at least 9 million metric tons more sold to China to catch up to our current balance sheet. To make a big splash, to get the higher prices, we need at least 15 to 20 million. The big splash would be 30 million, but, I mean, we're talking some very big numbers. Okay, so, Ted, you're saying 9 million metric tons or 15 million metric tons to even make a dent in carryover numbers for soybeans? That's what we need to see coming out of, coming out of China, yeah. coming into so China. Over 9 million metric tons to China is what we need to see, from what I can tell, is what we would need to see to put a dent into our carryover, given everything stays the same, meaning if the USDA doesn't lower production right. in January. But just from an export standpoint, 
we would need more than nine million metric tons to put a dent in our carryover. And again, you know, it, it, to put a significant dent in the carryover, well, uh, 10 million metric tons is roughly 35 million bushel, or, or I'm sorry, 350 million bushel. Mm-hmm. So if we went, if they if they came in and bought 20 million metric tons, that would knock our carryover down roughly to about 600 million bushel, or maybe just below. Mm-hmm. That would put us right on top of our previous record. That would be a lot more friendly than the scenario that we have right now but it's still not a really bullish scenario. Now, if you throw another 10 million metric tons on top of that, then that really does change things. So there's a, there's a wide range of things that can happen here with China, uh, but we need to see the number of bushels before we really know what to do with this. Ted, let me also throw this monkey wrench in there because I know a lot of analysts and traders are looking at what's going on in South America, Brazil and Argentina, soybean um, planting is ahead of pace, which means obviously harvest is probably going to be ahead of pace. Are we going to be able to physically, I mean, let's say China is buying from the U.S. Are we really mm-hmm. going to be able to get that many soybeans out, even if China, if, even if the demand is there with that fast, with that fast production going on in South America? Yeah. And so that all comes back to the question of olive, olive branch or just fulfilling need. Right. Right. Because if they, if they are extending the olive branch, if they are buying U.S. soybeans to prove a point that they are very serious about getting a trade resolution in place, then they will extend uh, – we can extend our export season past what our normal season would be. Uh, we would okay. be sending soybeans during that same time that they would be buying from South America. Now, if that's the case, the question then becomes capacity. Are we, would we be able to ship out – large amounts of soybeans while we're normally shipping out a, a, a large amount of corn during that time frame. Well, the good news is is that we've shipped out a lot of corn in the first half of this marketing year because of the fact that we haven't been shipping out as many soybeans. So I do think we have the capacity. From what I can tell, we were doing the math on this on Friday, we could send out a fair amount of corn, enough corn to hit our current export target and then still have four to five million metric tons of soybeans going out per month between now and the end of our marketing year. Um, you know, so it's doable. But again, the question is, is China going to buy a large, a large sum of soybeans as an olive branch as, as, you know, to prove a point, or are they just going to buy what they need for the next month and a half and then shift their purchases down to Brazil? Because if they do that, it's not going to be enough to fix our situation or even come close. Well, Ted, you mentioned corn there. Let's jump over to the corn market here, pulling up the March contract chart. It looks like we've got a nice little consolidation here above that 380, poking around that 385 number. Where do you see corn headed from here in the short term? Yeah, you know, I want to be optimistic on corn, you know, and I've really been watching the corn spreads very closely. The July uh, 19, December 19 corn corn spread is a lot tighter than it was this time of last year, meaning there's not a whole lot of carry out there. And that's kind of interesting from an old crop, new crop perspective. It would suggest that there's more upside potential for corn. However, we've been kind of just lounging around here waiting for something to happen and you know, this is really the time frame where we should be pushing higher. So I'm, I'm kind of losing my patience for higher corn prices. I want to remain optimistic. Uh, but if you look at March corn, you know, we have a big target up at 392. Uh, and that's about eight cents higher than where we're at right now. Um, and if we can get through that, then, then you figure we might, go, we might as well go and test the $4 mark. But uh, to me, that's a big question mark. You know, I, I think if you look at December corn at 403 and a half, new crop corn, Guys want to be looking at making, starting to scale in and some, some sales now at this point. Ted, I want to pick your brain about 
the ethanol market. We're heading into uh, 2019 here. We've got a lot of things on the horizon. Is China going to import ethanol? Is the EU going to continue to import a lot of ethanol? What's this E15 year-round thing going to do to the ethanol markets? Give us your kind of big-picture overview here as we head into the end of the calendar year of the ethanol market outlook. Yeah, ethanol margins are in trouble. Uh, we've seen ethanol margin, profit margins slip dramatically over the last few months. Part of that has to do with the value of RINs. So there's a lot of things going on. E15 all year round was a very nice um, talking point to make us feel warm and fuzzy about uh, the potential of using more, corn, using more ethanol and therefore using more corn for ethanol. But the problem is the blender credits that are being thrown around all over the place, uh, or waivers, I should say, um, is really taking a toll on the RIN market. So your RIN market is really eating into ethanol profit margins, meaning the outlook for ethanol isn't quite as rosy as it was maybe a few months ago. Uh, that could change if we were able to, to really get our exports going again, specifically if China were to come in uh, for a fair amount of U.S. ethanol exports. And I think that's a real possibility because China has expressed their want to really expand their ethanol usage and try to clean up their uh, I mean, they, they've they've got uh, a lot of uh, you know greenhouse issues and so on and so forth. So they, I mean, they've said that they wanted to do that, and I think that is an area of an op- of opportunity for us. We'll see if it happens or not. But it, it, something short of that, I mean, unless we can get our export market really cooking, ethanol domestically uh, is is maybe a bit of a question mark going into next year. And I, I'm really sad to be saying that because ethanol has really been the bright spot of the corn balance sheet here for the last few years. That's right. Go fill up with uh, E15, E85 whenever you can, I think, is the moral of this story, especially given how cheap it is. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan. I mean, you know, certainly uh, be aware of what your, what your vehicle will accommodate. Uh, I've heard a lot of stories about people using E85 in vehicles that aren't, uh, you know, made for it. Uh, but still, you know, I mean, at your own risk, I suppose. But I'm yes. a big fan of E85. I run it in my vehicles, and I really enjoy it. I know the uh, the old Lincoln loves that E15, 88 octane, cheaper than almost anything else, and that 78 little baby just purrs right along on E15. Not that I would encourage anybody else to do it that is in violation of the, uh, I don't know, rules or laws, whatever the heck. So let's just say I, I heard that it runs really well on E15. There you go. Now, yeah, and, and I think I think what you're looking for is manufacturers manufacturers recommendations. I suppose. I I don't know that the manufacturer had any recommendations. <laughs> no, right. So I think I'm in the clear. Yeah, except yeah. for no, but, I don't think so. I, I <laughs> the biggest issue that you have is is your fuel lines and and um, your valve gaskets and things like that because they're not made to resist the high alcohol content of the 85 and and theoretically it will it will corrode them and eat through them over time. Uh, well, they but, are all brand new valve gaskets and fuel lines are new, so I'm sure we're in good shape. You might be, yeah, you know, because uh, I would assume that what they're using now is going to be, you know, flex fuel compliant. So I think I you might assume. be okay with that. Well, we'll just keep giving it a shot, giving it a try. <laughs> there you go. Ted, Chicago wheat, we've got no or very little snow cover across the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts here? Is there anything that can spike this market, uh, get us a little get us a little movement to the upside? Well, you know, we're trying. I mean, look at wheat. Um, you know, here today, wheat's higher. Wheat was 
really the strength on the board. Uh, and you've got wheat kind of trading at the highest prices it's been since sort of mid-October and trying to sort of break out to the upside. One of the interesting things there is that our export sales for wheat have been really very good for the last couple of weeks, and that's coming without a sharp break in the dollar. So you wonder where that's coming from. I, I think there's um, I think there's something going on maybe over with the Black Sea area and Russia in particular. Their domestic prices are getting a little bit higher, and I think they are not limiting their their exports, but their export prices are getting higher. So their exports are becoming, or I should say, our exports are coming becoming more attractive even without that lower dollar. They're um, also so kind of in the midst of a sea battle, Ted, over there. That is true. Yes, they are right. So their ports shutting down and things like that. So all these things are kind of coming down are coming together to give us more business for our exports. And if that continues on like that, I do think we do have upside potential in the wheat. Now, it might be fairly limited because, again, there's a lot of talk that we're going to see a fairly large increase in wheat acres. Same story as the corn because of a lower soybean planted acreage number. Um, but at least for right now, if these export sales keep up, I think that gives us reason to believe that we have more upside potential for the wheat. Okay, Ted, we got to talk about live cattle here really quickly before we let you go. Packer margins, we've seen those drop a little bit here with primal rib cuts, uh, prices deteriorating a little bit. Heading into Christmas, the holiday season, people are eating beef. After the holiday season is over, are we going to continue to see packers at these, you know, really high level of slaughter paces? Yeah, I think it slows down a little bit just seasonally. That's our expectations, and I think we, you know, we're, we're going to give it our best guess. But ultimately, I do think our domestic demand is really very strong. Uh, and while I do think we can see a bit of a correction in the cattle market, mainly because right now we don't have any weather issues to get worried about, and there just doesn't seem like cash really wants to advance much higher at the moment. It just seems stuck in the mud. So I, I do think we can see a pullback. But longer term, you know, over time, uh, domestic demand is solid. Export demand has been fairly good. If we can pick up a little bit more export demand, that'd be great. I don't know if we need it or not. Ultimately, I think we are going to make new highs. Um, and if you go out like further in time to, like say, the April fat cattle contract, I think we'll get over that 2550. Um, and I think we'll get into you know maybe low 130s or so is sort of my target. That was my question for you, Ted. Given the given the huge slaughter rates that we've seen, six hundred sixty thousand head, six hundred seventy five thousand head a week. Right. I mean, we gotta be, I would assume, be pulling some cattle forward, maybe shrinking those uh, show lists for, like you say, a little bit later this spring. Right, right, or at yeah, least so that February contract time frame. Late spring, early summer, I think, is where where you're going to see the strength. Absolutely. I got to ask you, what happened to feeder cattle today? Down two bucks, pretty well across the board, almost two fifty in the March. What? what today? Did I miss some news, or is this just the feeder cattle market being feeder cattle? I think it's just the feeder cattle being feeder cattle. I didn't really see anything in, as far as news is concerned, but, you know, we spent Thursday and Friday trying to run up against our 50-day moving average and close above it. We were, we were unable to do that, so technical selling just coming into the market, knocking us back down to the, sort of our, our very short-term trend line support. Hopefully, we can bounce from this and not extend this lower, because we do at the moment have kind of a nice little double bottom formation uh for the for the feeder cattle uh but if we extend today's losses in the next couple of days that could come under fire too but uh, i would like to think that feeders are kind of carving out a bit of a longer term bottom here we're gonna have to watch for the next couple days to see how that how that plays out well ted cypher if our listeners want to get a hold of you how can they do that get your thoughts get your opinions and get your assistance with their marketing plans 
Absolutely. You can reach me directly at 312-277-0113. Aside from that, you can find us on the web at www.zaner.com. You can sign up for our Morning Ag Hedge newsletter. You can read a bit a bit about us. Uh, and, yeah, thanks for visiting. And he's on Twitter at the Ted Spread. Ted Seifert, thanks for talking to us. Hey, pleasure's mine, guys. Have a great day. All right. Well, again, a big thank you to Ted Seifert there from the Zayner Group. Always got a lot of good things to say, Mike. And if we have producers or people listening that have good things to say or want to interact with us, where can they find us, Mike? They should always check us out on Twitter and on Facebook. We want your opinions, your thoughts, your stories that we ought to be covering. Find us. Just search for Ag News Daily. We're there on both Twitter and Facebook. Or you can search for our parent company, the Global Ag Network. Just search Global Ag Network on Facebook and Twitter. And I think Instagram. We are on all those places. And we want to talk to you. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.